presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Kelly Caulfield. I am the executive director of the Common Sense Institute. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am thrilled to have our two 2023 Terry J. Stevenson Fellows on the show today. Terry Stevenson decided over four years ago to create an endowed fellowship designed to spur thoughtful policy discussions and potential solutions regarding the many policy and economic challenges brought about by population growth here in Colorado. In 2020, Henry Sobinet and Ben Stein came together to tackle infrastructure. In 2021, Evelyn Lim and Peter Lafari focused on housing. In 2022, Jennifer Gimble and Eric Kuhn came together to talk about water scarcity and our challenges for water in Colorado. This year, the fellowship focused on innovative solutions for pursuing a broader energy policy and strategy for Colorado. We asked our fellows to identify opportunities, impacts, and the trade-offs of increasing new energy technology within Colorado. We said, don't limit yourself, envision your ideal policy for Colorado for the coming decades and provide tangible tools to help policymakers get there. Also last week, Common Sense Institute developed a Colorado Competitiveness Energy Index based on 10 state-level sector-specific data points from the U.S. Energy Information Administration, focusing on prices, capacity, and reliability. This index was released last week alongside the Terry J. Stevenson paper that our fellows wrote. But back to our fellows, I'd like to introduce them so we can kick off our conversation. I want to start with Doug Benevento. He is a partner at Holland and Hart. He brings a sophisticated understanding of environmental policy and compliance. From many high-level leadership roles he's held at federal and state agencies, including serving as the EPA Acting Deputy Administrator and the EPA Region 8 Administrator. He is also the former Executive Director of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment and used to work um, in a senior-level position for Excel Energy. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. Good to be here, Kelly. Tisha Schuler is our other 2023 Terry J. Stevenson Fellow. Tisha founded Adamantine Energy to provide thought leadership to energy companies to translate sustainability and decarbonization aspiration into action. Tisha served as president and CEO of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association and as principal and vice president of Tektra Tech, a national environmental consulting and engineering firm. She has held numerous advisory council positions related to energy and is a member of the National Petroleum Council, an advisory board to the U.S. Secretary of Energy under the Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations. Welcome, Tisha. Kelly, thanks for having me. Tisha, I'm going to ask you to just start off and provide our listeners with a quick overview of what were the five joint recommendations that you and Doug developed in your energy paper? The important thing that frames um, all of our conversation today is the centrality of energy to well-being and prosperity in the state of Colorado. 
And I think it's worth painting a little bit of picture as we run through the five recommendations. And the first is just of energy is is the lifeblood of everything we do. Energy is what makes it possible um, for not just for us to keep our lights on, but for us to move goods and services around the state to provide feedstock for everything from steel to fertilizer, and then of course to provide industrial heat, and then as well as keep our buildings warm and provide incidental things that we love like gas stoves for cooking. So energy is this really important piece that sets the stage for uh, recruiting businesses to the state, uh, having an affordable lifestyle, and even being able to enjoy the great outdoors, things that everyone in Colorado can get excited about. Now, Colorado doesn't have an energy policy. Uh, What we have is a greenhouse gas focused set of uh, priorities uh, that ultimately ends up serving as an energy policy. And so the first recommendation that we make as a joint recommendation is that Colorado really should have an energy policy strategy. Energy is so central to everything we do. We have this um, really robust 150 year history of both traditional and novel energy production across Across every single corner of the state. And having a greenhouse gas um, roadmap serving as a de facto energy policy just isn't adequate to help position us for the challenges of today and certainly for the opportunities of tomorrow. So the first recommendation is simply to be mindful of creating an actual energy policy strategy. And that would then give us the opportunity to look at all the various trade-offs inherent in the production and transportation, distribution, and use of energy. Um, The second recommendation is that this energy policy strategy acknowledge and then reflect the complexity of the energy system. So it's really easy for us to oversimplify and think of energy as Uh, is turning the lights on or putting gas in our gas tank. But in reality, energy is just extraordinarily complex. And even something as simple as replacing, say, a coal-fired power plant with wind turbines has all of these knock-on effects around land use, wildlife habitat, water use. And so we want to make sure that an energy policy strategy is reflective of the complexity of the energy system so that policymakers and legislators can think about the real trade-offs that each decision requires. In that context, the third recommendation is to move away from Colorado's stated 100% renewable goal and to think of these things in the context of a net zero framework. Most of the world, most businesses, most economies are talking about uh, climate goals in the context of net net zero. And that's important for a number of reasons. Uh, One of which is if you have traditional energy production, it gives you a way to talk about how to continue to use it, but to offset it with either reductions or even negative emissions, things like carbon capture and sequestration. The fourth recommendation is pretty common sense and therefore reflective of our namesake here, the Common Sense Institute, which is to encourage policymakers to embrace a five-factor framework for considering the trade-offs around energy development. So this is really common sense considerations. Rather than just saying we need to reduce emissions in X, Y, or Z way, we recommend that there are questions such as, would this increase costs at, at what 
Uh, to what benefit? Would this cause uh, fuel shortages or price spikes? Um, would this have unintended consequences? So putting decisions around energy through a common sense framework would really help to both embrace the complexity and also be mindful of the decisions and the trade-offs they require. And then the last uh, recommendation that we make jointly is to consider things like Common Sense's um, competitiveness index. It's another way of being thoughtful about all the various considerations in energy policy. And so those are the five ways that we came together to say that Colorado has potential to um, both take advantage of its historic and really significant resources and talent, um, but do so in a in a more deliberate and disciplined way. Thanks so much for that, Tisha. I love hearing about the joint recommendations that you and Doug put together in this report, which can be found on the Common Sense Institute CO.org website, front and center. Doug, I want to ask you a little bit more. I believe it was the third joint recommendation seems really timely, and that is to reassess Colorado's commitment to 100% renewables. What do you all propose instead? What do you propose instead, Doug? So there, are, there there's a sort of bunch going on with respect to Colorado energy policy. The um, It's not really a de facto policy, as, as Tisha just mentioned. It's more of a de jure policy. They've sort of enshrined it into law, and they're busy enshrining it into regulation right now. And of course, the policy that uh, or the document that's doing that is the greenhouse gas roadmap. Um, one was uh, released in 2021, and then there was a second that was um, that is being worked on right now. And I address sort of the greenhouse gas roadmap one and the development of two and my sort of individual recommendations because that's really that's energy policy in Colorado. You know, economic development policy and everything else sort of is a tangential to what is energy policy in Colorado. But direct energy policy is what are we doing to provide power to consumers, um, power to people who drive cars? How is that being impacted? So Colorado, as you alluded to, has sort of two different policies. They can work together, though I, I, it's not clear to me that they're intended to. Uh, the governor has a 2040, 100% renewable goal that is still, I believe, the policy, his policy, and it's just unachievable. It can't be done. Um, you can't take a grid and run it on renewables, not, not if you're going to have uh, even a 20th century grid, let alone a 21st century grid. Um, and so they need to sort of drop that. And they're, and they're going, I, I, I assume they're going to, because it's not just those of us on this podcast that understand that it can't be done. I think it's most energy experts, whether right or left. The net zero policy, Tisha mentioned, um, is a good is a good aspirational policy for a whole host of reasons. However, what it can't be done is it can't be constrained by sort of artificial timelines. Right now, you have the legislature has set uh, net zero policy goals ending, I think it's in 2050 of 100% net zero. Technologically, you can't do that right now. What, what we have is you have policy and technology are sort of not collaborating, uh, to use a word that I've heard a lot over the last few months, are not collaborating with each other on whether something can be done. To go to net zero, there's a whole new infrastructure that's going to have to be developed. And whether that infrastructure is cost effective, um, I think people are looking at their utility bills right now and are saying, gosh, this seems like a lot more than, than what I'm used to paying. And the reason why is because utilities are starting to adjust their grid to meet the policy goals uh, of the of the legislature and, and the governor. 
And whether or not they can do that in the timeframes that is outlined is an open question, but certainly they can try and certainly they can overbuild the infrastructure to do that. A 100% renewable goal by 2040 is, is frankly, it can't be done. Um, whether or not the net zero goals and the artificial timelines that have been set up can be done is an open question as well. And can it be done so you maintain a reliable grid and you maintain a, you, you, you sort of still cabin in costs? And really, that's energy policy. Is it something technologically feasible and is it cost effective? Everything else is just sort of a nice addendum to it and things that should be considered, but really cost and reliability are what you need to be focused on. Thanks, Doug. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the focus you're bringing to the conversation. Tisha, I want to go back to you. The report that you and Doug wrote talks a lot about this current energy mix in Colorado. And I really love that part because for someone who's trying to understand energy policy more in Colorado, it, it just helps us better understand what type of what production looks like right now. I want to ask you, you know, how does the conversation about the current production in Colorado, how does that need to change in order to meet the vision that is set up in the paper. There's some interesting polarization that happens around energy sources where people have 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 really started thinking and talking about energy, often in the context of political identities or political polarization. And it it is silly because ultimately we're either talking about molecules or electrons and they don't have personalities and they're not inherently good nor evil. But what ends up happening is we talk about traditional sources of energy often as negative and also fuels of the past. So in Colorado, this would be coal, oil, and gas, things we've been producing for 150 years and um many corners of the state. And people often talk about renewables as as positive or as, you know, the future. In reality, this is all nonsense. And one of the ways that we can have more constructive conversations about Colorado is to talk about what we want to accomplish with our energy. And um, Doug makes some really important points about um, availability, reliability, affordability. These are central to things that communities want to do and that the state wants to accomplish and to us ultimately being competitive and attracting attracting and retaining both businesses and um, individual residents, regardless of their politics. So talking about energy more in the context of trade-offs, I think can be really constructive as a way to sort of transcend these oversimplifications and really help people think about what do we want to accomplish and what will help us get there. So one good example example of that would be what I would call, say, oil and gas adjacent solutions. These are solutions that people get excited about, like geothermal or hydrogen, net zero um, liquids and gases as fuels. Um, You know, when you hear about things like airline fuels that will be net zero. These are things that traditional um, companies can produce with with their existing workforces and their skill sets with the option of both producing their traditional fuels and being a part of accelerating use of current infrastructure and use of current people to be producing these energy sources of the future. So de-escalating some of our polarization around what's good, what's bad, and thinking instead in a in a more complex, a bigger framework about the energy system, what we want to accomplish, and how we can really repurpose what we have and accelerate our interests, we can do that in Colorado by including a lot more people at the table. So I'd I'd like to include our traditional mining industries, our oil and gas industry. And these conversations, I think we can get a lot more accomplished and we can accelerate 
progress also towards decarbonizing. So th- those are things that I find really compelling and also really exciting. Co- Colorado is positioned to be a national leader in this space if we take advantage of the tremendous resources that we have in their entirety. So Disha, I, I love the vision. I love how we're talking about you know our aspirational framework that we want to move towards Doug, I, I want to better, you know, understand and educate our, our listeners about currently in Colorado, the impacts to prices, reliability, and what we're seeing, you know, at the pump, these rising utility costs as well. Can, can you talk a little bit about, if, if we don't make some changes here, how is Colorado's competitiveness as a destination for job creation and investment being impacted today? Yeah, and I think you guys have captured um, some elements nicely, and I know you're continuing to work on it in the in the sort of energy policy index. I think you've captured some elements there nicely. I don't think this is very complicated. Um, you know, one, I think market forces are best able to determine how quickly to move with respect to decarbonization. You sort of move at the pace of technology. Um, and right now, market forces have been divorced from that conversation. And it's now all a lot of aspirational goals um, that have been established that don't reflect reliability, that don't reflect cost. If we want to look at what our future could be, um, I think we need to sort of take a look at California. California um, is a little bit ahead of Colorado in their decarbonization efforts. Um, and they've actually done a really good job, but Colorado hasn't, in sort of articulating the costs just to Colorado, just to taxpayers, to uh, people that live in Colorado. We, we already know we're not quite California yet, but we are becoming an increasingly unaffordable state. Housing prices are high. The rate of inflation um, I saw last week was announced that we are we are well ahead of the national average of inflation rate. Contributing to the, that is is our energy costs. So California, uh, they did, you know, their roadmap, they did a a cumulative cost analysis of it. And what they found is that by 2035, under their plan, households that make less than 100,000 per year, their income is estimated to decline by $4.1 billion. By 2045, it's $5.3 billion. So for those earning under $100,000, they know how much it's going to cost their citizens. And we can sort of look at that and say, well, that's probably, you know, if not exactly right, directionally right is what's going to happen in Colorado. And if you're worried that people who earn just under $100,000 can afford it, it also has a proportional impact of people earning under $50,000. Okay, great. We, we, we want to move in this direction. Um, you know, one of the recommendations I made individually without Tisha was that we should do a cumulative cost analysis. California can do it. We can do it. How much is this going to cost Coloradans to implement the plans that are in the roadmap? We know what they are. We know they're there. You can model these things. You can do an assessment of these things. And you can determine, okay, here's the total cost people are going to have to bear. It's not really difficult stuff. And that's one of the things that's missing from Roadmap 1. And I anticipate Roadmap 2.0 that I've talked to folks that are putting together in the governor's office roadmap 2.0, and they said they're going to be be a little bit more robust. We'll see how robust they will be. What we do know is everything they do is going to increase costs on, on everybody. Um, if you, I'm, everybody, I'm assuming everybody uses some form of energy, so everybody's going to have to do it. The other thing they are doing is um, there appears to be a restriction on the development of oil and gas in Colorado which makes zero sense if you're actually interested in climate. Uh, Colorado has 
among the most restrictive environmental policies with respect to extracting fossil fuels. And those policies work. The extraction in Colorado results in less uh, climate impact than extraction almost anywhere else. Yet we know for a fact that getting a permit out of the state of Colorado is really, really hard. And it's taking a really, really long time. The result of that is regulatory uncertainty. The result of regulatory uncertainty is people are just going to go get their natural gas from somewhere else. Perfect example in the Trump administration. There was a pipeline, I I believe it was an oil pipeline that was going to be running that had to go through New York. It was going to provide, I I believe it was oil. And if I'm a little bit wrong, I'm directionally just about right on this thing. Is going to provide it to uh, Massachusetts. The governor of New York, Cuomo, um, killed the pipeline. So great. And he touted that as a climate issue. Well, you know what the people of, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Massachusetts did. They started getting oil from Russia. I guarantee you the climate impact from that decision was really negative. And we could have avoided that if we had had more thoughtful policies and frankly, a little less grandstanding. So Doug, one of the stakeholders you just mentioned that's important to be a part of this is, of course, Governor Polis. Tisha, I want to ask you, who else needs to hear these findings? I mean, I feel really energized by hearing a Democrat and Republican coming together, the two of you on a set of unified recommendations. Who else needs to be a part of this conversation to move your ideas forward? I actually think it's really important that um, energy consumers writ large uh, and start paying more attention to what's happening and what's coming. And, and I think in a pragmatic way, what this means is that the business community statewide, but the business, there's a lot of economic development and, and chambers of commerce locally around the state. And I think it's important as, for example, the um, Polis administration goes around and does Greenhouse Gas Roadmap 2.0, they really are soliciting input. Now, it's hard because if you're an economic development organization in, say, Loveland, it's hard to understand in what ways you could contribute meaningfully to Greenhouse Gas Roadmap 2.0. But what we need to convey is the ways in which energy is central to economic development and economic well-being. So I think the business community is really central to getting engaged. Engaged and participating in understanding the trade-offs and having a louder voice about what we want, the role we want energy to serve in Colorado's long-term well-being. So, Tisha, just as a follow-up there, I mean, counties and cities are, you just mentioned Loveland, I mean, counties and cities are very powerful here in Colorado. I think we all saw that loud and clear last legislative session, but in, in all the ones before, I mean, What's the role for counties and cities, especially those outside of the front range in this conversation? Yeah, there's a couple things. One, the organizations that represent counties, you know, Colorado Counties, Inc. and CML representing the towns. These are really powerful organizations. And they have to, by their definition, transcend politics because they represent very conservative and very liberal um, communities across the state and starting to participate in in these conversations around uh, the energy mix in Colorado and the need for energy policy is one way I think for us to introduce more important the important complexity of the issue and the very many um, ramifications of a lot of the decisions that we're making right now so I think it's important to have those those sorts of organizations get involved but I would even go farther which is to say that the many rural communities in Colorado particularly traditional producing areas, let's just say the West Slope, it's easy for this to become 
become conversations about the past or the future. But these are communities that actually have very dynamic visions of their role in the energy future in the potential for oil and gas and oil and gas in adjacent to be a part of networks, for example. So this is all, I think, important ways that communities that have traditionally been associated with, um, say, oil and gas or mining, that they can participate in the conversations about how they want to be a part of the energy future. And I think we would be better served by putting their voices as central to these conversations, because there's a lot of really interesting dynamism going on in traditional energy producing communities around the energy future. But they're not, uh, I don't think they're often a sought out voice in the conversations happening, for example, at the Capitol. Doug, what would you add to that in terms of key stakeholders and who else needs to be a part of this conversation so that your recommendations continue to have legs? I actually, I think this is very simple. I, I disagree that this is complex. I think it's terribly simple. I think what people need to know, whether it's the Loveland Chamber or the Aspen Chamber or the you know Burlington Chamber, what's this going to cost? The goal of the policies established by the governor and the legislature is to address climate change. Um, we know for a fact that if Colorado were to shut down tomorrow, we would have no effect on climate change, um, on reaching the sort of one and a half degree increase by 2030, um, I, I believe is the, is the latest number. So, okay, so there's that. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything. Climate change is real. You know, it should be addressed, but you need to understand the impact you're going to have on it. So in order to do something that will have no individual effect on climate change, what's the cost going to be? There are billions being invested right now by utilities across Colorado that are going to be paid for by ratepayers to meet the policies established by the governor and the legislature. What's the bottom line of that? We California's done it. We know that can be done. If there's one thing that people should be asking is you need to tell us how much this is going to cost us to get to the to get to the goal that you want to get to. Because I think it's going to be a lot. I think we're going to have a state that is going to be even more expensive in the next few years because of this. And I think that folks should be informed about what's going to cost them. I agree with you, Doug. And Common Sense Institute will be doing our own greenhouse gas analysis um, on the costs and benefits side, hopefully later this year, beginning of next year. Because I do agree, quantifying the costs is critically important to the statewide conversation. Doug, while I have you in the hot seat, I also want to ask you about permitting reform. I loved your joint recommendations, but also know that you have individualized ones. Can you talk to me a little bit more about your permitting reform um, suggestion? Yeah, this is something I picked up from, ironically, I think that's a proper use, um, California, and also I think Washington State did something similar. They understand that they're trying to do something that is big and unique. So they also started looking at their regulatory structure to see if it was supporting the goals that they have. Now, I think they were primarily focused on uh, you know, permitting and regulatory reform for renewables. But I think in a bigger picture, I think you can make a strong climate case that we need to do it here also for renewables, but also for fossil fuels um, as well. Going back to my point, if somebody is using gas developed in Colorado, if they don't use Colorado's gas, they're going to use somebody else's gas, and that's going to have a negative climate impact. Therefore, um, we should be doing everything possible to incentivize the industry in Colorado to extract natural gas. Um, we should be incentivizing the delivery of it um, to other states. Um, 
California is one of the biggest, I think maybe the biggest natural gas, sec, first or second natural gas user in the United States, and they import most of it. Um, we should be developing markets to send our natural gas to. It's good from a climate perspective. It's good from a general environmental perspective. It's good from an economic perspective. Those rural communities that Tisha was talking about wouldn't have to worry about fitting into some structure because people have decided that they're artificially going to stop the use of fossil fuels. They can actually do what they do well, which is support a natural gas industry um, that is also good for uh, good for climate. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate that. And But I do want to ask you a more optimistic question. We've talked a lot about some of the challenges and some of our opportunities. But, you know, Tisha, let's start with you. What in terms of energy policy, what makes you optimistic for Colorado's future? I think as decarbonizing goals have hit actualization, companies and um, governments are now trying to make good on aspirational pledges that they made. What's happening is we're seeing a lot more pragmatism coming in the realities of governance. And I think this is a great thing because I I don't think that decarbonization as a central uh, priority of companies or governments is going anywhere. And so what we need is a space to have conversations about the complexity, about the trade-offs, and about um, what it's going to take, how much time it's going to take to enable a transition that's orderly. So I'm actually really optimistic because in my work, um, which is primarily with companies, but we do a lot of collaboration with environmental NGOs, especially now that we have all these federal hubs that are coming into play and we work with, with governments on the policy side of this. What I see is that now there's this general consensus that this is hard harder than than we thought when we were only speaking in aspirational terms and i think that's actually the first step towards making real interesting change that makes more room for many of these solutions that are going to take in many cases decades but that leaves more room at the table for companies for historically um oil and gas and coal producing communities for us to consider mining and nuclear and i'm optimistic about the wide array of potential energy tools in the toolbox and the willingness of people to start talking about the realities of implementation. Is it easy? Are we going to get there tomorrow? No, but I spend my days in this awkward uh, and difficult space. And it feels to me like there's just more exciting happening than there has ever before. What about you, Doug? Um, Facts. Facts are that a lot of the aspirational policy that has been set out can't be reached. Uh, in the time frames they have been reached, that is going to become more apparent as time marches on. I think that Tisha used the word pragmatism. I think that's a good word to use. Um, I think that pragmatists will ultimately win out. Uh, there is a middle ground. I worked in the, I was a presidential appointee in the Trump administration, and I think moving towards a net zero goal is a good thing. But I think you do it at the pace of technology and at the pace of markets, um, not at the pace of artificially developed timeframes that, frankly, people don't know is going to have any actual impact on climate. I think facts make a difference. I think that is going to be ultimately facts will win. And I think the trade-offs that Tisha talks about will be determined, but I don't think they'll be determined by, uh, I, I think they will be determined by markets um, and I think they'll be determined by after weighing the costs that are associated and the reliability impacts that the trade-offs will have. Thanks for that, Doug. I'm going to close this out shortly here, but I do want to see if either of you have some closing remarks. Tisha, is there anything else you wanted to add before we sign off today? 
I think the only thing that that animates uh, all of our work and that certainly animates my approach is that we can only influence um, the policymakers and the stakeholders to the extent that we can create interest in what we have to say and interest in our ideas and our solutions. So a lot of this work is going to be less about having the right solution or the right piece of information and more about figuring out what's the bridge that can be built um, to create the spaces for the pragmatic conversations and for the solutions that include more people. And I think that's an imp important part of what we're all trying to accomplish. And it's certainly why I think being future focused, being optimistic and looking for the areas of common ground is is what is going to help us make progress ultimately. Doug, any closing remarks? Thank you, Tisha. I like that optimism. I probably disagree that this is about how you frame the issue. I think this is about the actual impact of your policies. It's it's not, you know, hey, who can describe this in the best way and, and, and who can engage in the most collaborative way, though collaboration is important. But what is important is our actual impacts of the things that you decide. Um, we're seeing those impacts right now. As I've mentioned multiple times already, Colorado's really expensive and it's getting more expensive. People who would otherwise stay here or move here aren't coming. And that includes companies because we're expensive and getting more expensive. And I think facts and outcomes are what is going to dictate ultimately one more, I think, a reasonable approach to addressing climate. Doug and Tisha, thank you so much. I feel like I'm hearing loud and clear a focus on the facts, a focus on the data around what is the true impact to prices, reliability and capacity. I'm hearing bring in new voices, bring in important voices that have always been there, but elevate them in smarter ways with the business community, the counties and the cities um, so that we can all move your vision forward here in Colorado. I want to thank the funder of this fellowship, Terry J. Stevenson, his vision for this work. Also appreciate the very impressive advisory council that reviewed the draft. Their names are in the report. Please thank them if you see them. We appreciated their time. And I would just encourage all of our listeners, please check out our website, commonsenseinstituteco.org. You will see Tisha and Doug's full report, the cheat sheet, two-page synopsis, as well as the energy competitiveness index we've talked about today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.